A distant horn sounds across quietly rustling strings. It could be a human horn player, a huntsman perhaps, heard from within the green twilight of a great forest. Or it could be something primeval or archetypal, the visionary landscape of a dream through which phrases of a mysterious song beckon irresistibly. The beginning of Bruckner's Fourth Symphony is one of those musical openings which invites metaphors. It's hard to resist the temptation to interpret it visually, to paint a picture in the mind which matches something of its elusive musical essence. And it's one of the few moments that everyone can agree they love, even people who normally hate Bruckner. It's safe to say there is a bit of a Bruckner problem. Many people find his music difficult to get into. They just can't see the point of listening to these huge, lumbering symphonies with their constant and almost naive repetitions. But the opening of this symphony is universally admired. And before we go into it in detail, here's just a hint of where it might have come from. opening of Wagner's opera Das Rheingold, with the horn call of the Rhine maidens emerging from the formless void at the bottom of the river. And the similarities between the two openings highlight what makes Bruckner's beginning so special. For one thing, that feeling of distance, the solo horn sounding across the strings, isn't just metaphorical. In a symphony orchestra, horns are normally placed at the back, raised above the woodwind and the strings. So there's a scientific, acoustic explanation for part of that poetic effect. The horn call itself is an archetypal sound, a sound ripe with imagery in our minds. There are long-established associations with rural life, especially hunting. And for an Austrian like Bruckner, there might be further musical connections, with alpine horns, for instance, or the primitive instruments farmers use to call their cattle home. And there's something archetypal about the notes Bruckner's horn plays. It's just a simple, perfect fifth. A perfect fifth is one of the most basic intervals in Western tonal music. That's where that sense of primal purity comes from. But that purity is set against hushed, rustling strings, and how different they sound compared to that luminous horn call. That's played tremolo, the bow trembling backwards and forwards on the strings. Five of Bruckner's nine numbered symphonies begin with this kind of mysterious sound. It's been described, rather nicely, as a musical nebula. Writers also tend to be pretty quick to tell us where Bruckner got this sound from, not Wagner this time. When Bruckner was 42, 
he heard Beethoven's Ninth Symphony for the first time. It would be no exaggeration to say that it changed his life. The scale and power of Beethoven's Ninth showed that there was so much more you could say in symphonic form than Bruckner had previously realised. And Beethoven's Ninth begins with a sound which is not unlike Bruckner's string tremolo. But that's not quite a tremolo, a blur of notes. What we can hear there are tense, expectant sextuplets, very quick but rhythmically defined. Something very fast and energetic could grow from that sound, and indeed it does. But Bruckner's shimmering strings don't give us any sense of movement forwards. There's no clear beat. It isn't until the horn comes in that we get any sense of forward movement. So now we have movement, proportion, time, the act of creation. It's hard to avoid religious comparisons in Bruckner's music, especially when you know that he was a devout Roman Catholic, a composer who dedicated his Ninth Symphony to Dear God. Woodwind now take up the horn's phrases. As the tension mounts, they begin to climb upwards. Catholic faith may have left another imprint on the music at this point, in the way those woodwind phrases begin to rise. They remind me of something Bruckner surely must have known, the French composer Charles Gounod's famous setting of the Ave Maria, in which he added a vocal line to a Bach prelude. There's a similar sequence of rising phrases. was written in 1859, 15 years before Bruckner began work on his fourth symphony. I find it hard to believe that the similarity is just a coincidence, and it gives us another clue to Bruckner's world. 
One reason why people find his music difficult is the feeling that you're sometimes listening to a kind of very long sermon. For such people, religion and devotion should have no place in an abstract symphony. But for Bruckner, it was inseparable. The act of composing was part of his immensely strong religious life. On one occasion, he's reputed to have said, They want me to write in a different way. I could, but I must not. One day I shall have to give an account of myself. How would the Father in Heaven judge me if I followed others and not him? As those woodwind phrases rise ever higher, to me they seem to mirror Bruckner's lifelong search for the divine, for the light and order of creation, after the darkness of the void. We seem to have reached a clear punctuation mark. The music is now poised on the edge of B-flat major, ready to begin the second main theme. That's exactly where we'd expect to be if this were a conventional first movement. But it isn't. People who dislike Bruckner sometimes accuse him of unthinkingly basing his forms on classical models, of filling a one-size-fits-all structure with whatever music was wandering around in his head at the time. But I ask you, could an unthinking artist have produced anything as confidently, grandly inevitable as that music we've just heard? I doubt it. And now he does something completely unexpected. If Bruckner were simply following classical procedure, he'd probably have done something like this. Well, that's almost what he does, bar one hugely important detail. He uses exactly that music, but twists the harmony into a completely unexpected key.
so, gently but firmly, he pulls the rug out from under our feet. In fact, what Bruckner does here points to another composer who exerted a powerful influence on him, Schubert. In his string quintet, Schubert sets us up in exactly the same way to expect a second main theme in one key, then slides down a major third into stranger territory. Sometimes there's a feeling that Bruckner seems to sit outside some kind of great symphonic tradition, a tradition that starts with Mozart and Haydn and moves through Beethoven and Schubert to Brahms and Mahler. Bruckner's left on the side, a bit of a weirdo, someone quite easy to leave out of the mainstream. But in fact he's constantly showing he knows exactly where he stands in the line of Austro-German composers, full square in the great tradition. There's quite a sense of struggle there. The orchestra heaves itself out of dark minor key regions into triumphant major at the end. But at the same time, under the furiously active surface, something much calmer, steadier is going on. You can feel a steady beat, one bar at a time, moving in regular symmetrical patterns. So it's not so much of a surprise when something calmly majestic emerges out of that turmoil, echoes of the opening horn call leading to a magnificent brass chorale.
I think this is another point where people have a problem with Bruckner. This sudden stop-start progress can feel intensely frustrating, almost incoherent at times. But I think the trick is to learn to hear underneath the surface of the music, as if you're pulling a camera back from focusing on the fluttering of a single bird so that you can see the majesty and the slow, graceful dance of the huge flock. The surface may seem troubled, furiously surging forward, but in the background there's always that regular tread. And then, suddenly, the surface activity will stop, and you're left with just that measured but inevitable background movement. If you can accept that the real movement is that stately tread, then music like this can be absolutely thrilling, as though the twitching curtains have suddenly parted and a grand vista revealed. After that joyously affirmative end to the first movement of Bruckner's Fourth Symphony, the second movement sets off into very different territory. For some people, Bruckner's slow movements have become a kind of musical stereotype. Slow, dignified, even pompous, always deeply serious. I wouldn't describe the second movement of the fourth as light or frothy, but it doesn't fit into that stereotype. For a start, it's not marked adagio, slow, but andante, which means at a walking pace. It starts with a figure for violins and violas, muted, which suggests slow trudging. But like any great symphonist, Bruckner wants to make sure that he continues his musical arguments. Remember that interval the horn played, the perfect fifth. The cellos take that same rocking interval, transpose it downwards, and make it their starting point for this second movement.
Again, I think Bruckner's paying homage to Schubert here. The slow movement of Schubert's piano trio in E-flat has a similar slow walking pace. But Bruckner makes something completely different out of this model. There's a feeling of spacious stillness. One writer compared it to the barely perceptible movement of the night sky. It must have been this Bruckner movement which haunted Mahler's imagination as he composed another slow procession, the first night music of his Seventh Symphony. So Bruckner takes his place firmly in a tradition. He finds a model in Schubert, but makes something original from it, which is then picked up by Mahler and transformed again. Bruckner is no maverick haunting the outskirts of normal symphonic writing. He's someone taking his rightful place in a great Austro-German musical heritage. Eventually, this movement builds to a splendid climax, all dark thoughts appear to have been banished. have yet another model in mind here. He uses rippling figures in the upper strings. 
To me, they sound rather like the cascading figures in the prelude to Wagner's opera Tannhäuser. And as in the Bruckner, they accompany a grand tune on the trombones. But one reason why these models matter is what Bruckner does with them. He's tapping into a richly symbolic vein of music, triumphant processionals, grand religious events. In the Wagner, it accompanies the lengthy march of pilgrims to Rome. But in Bruckner, the triumph is short-lived. Just when the splendor seems at its height, he suddenly hushes the orchestra and twists the harmony. Now those timpani strokes are beginning to sound ominous, while the string harmonies darken. That's a really anguished dissonance at the end there, isn't it? Throughout this movement, there's been a sense of foreboding. We've heard whispers of a march in this movement. Could it be a funeral march? Every now and again, Bruckner takes his eye off that still night sky for a moment, and we hear hints of something darker. Now the sombre march tread is virtually all that's left. Thus, the slow movement finally marches into silence. It's an extraordinary movement, not quite like anything else I know. It's the perfect answer to anyone who thinks that Bruckner's music is one-dimensional or crude. The prevailing impression is of a spacious, nocturnal stillness, and yet from time to time, as though out of the corner of our eyes, 
we glimpse another kind of darkness, that fragmentary funeral march, the presence of mortality. But the next movement, the scherzo, could hardly be in greater contrast. Instead of ghostly whispers of death, we meet life head-on in the exhilaration of the chase. If that opening horn fanfare sounded familiar, it's because Bruckner's arrived at it by compressing the symphony's very opening horn call. And once again, as well as this echo, there may be a model in the background. One of Bruckner's most overwhelming musical experiences was hearing a performance of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. Wagner's distant hunting horns at the beginning of Act Two, one of the most ravishing moments in the opera, must have gone on reverberating in his memory. Wagner's horns fade mysteriously. Bruckner's explode with life and light. The model is there, but the artistic intention is unique and utterly exhilarating. After the darkness and ambiguity of Bruckner's slow movement, this scherzo seems all light and fresh air. But the opening of the finale sounds a very different emotional note. You'll hear echoes of the scherzo's horn call, but its whole character seems to have been changed into something more sombre and much more massive.
that's a magnificent beginning, powerful with a tragic inevitability to it. According to Bruckner, that sledgehammer unison theme came to him in a dream. That must have been some dream. But at this point in the symphony, I have to confess some sympathy with Bruckner haters. A tremendous finale could have grown from this promising beginning. But for me, Bruckner here begins to lose the masterly grip on his musical processes that he's shown so far. I don't think even dedicated Brucknerians would disagree with me en masse for saying that, even though there's still plenty of magnificent music to come. I think the miscalculation comes soon after that unison theme we've just heard. At first, all seems well. You may be wondering, what's wrong with that? That climax is rather impressive, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. The movement began darkly, searchingly in the minor. Then suddenly there's a blaze of light, and the Fourth Symphony's original horn call returns in triumph, in the home key, and in the major, and the music stops. Light seems to have banished darkness pretty resoundingly. Thematically and tonally, we've come home. And crucially, the background movement has stopped. What more is there to say? But you can't have a finale to three huge movements which is less than five minutes long. So Bruckner tries to recover a sense of purpose. It says a lot for him that he manages to create so much compelling music in the process. But you can't get away from the feeling that in terms of musical argument, the stately Brucknerian ocean liner has been holed below the waterline. Still, the last five minutes or so of this symphony, the preparation and building of a final long crescendo, are so impressive, so astonishing, that in some performances you can end up wondering if the faults are really Bruckner's at all. Have we simply failed to understand his conception? After a long, hushed passage, we hear these highly charged tremolando figures on the strings. That in itself is a masterstroke. The very sound reminds us of that timeless string tremolo at the very beginning of the symphony, the fertile void from which the original horn motif emerged. The finale's initial three-note motif
that now simultaneously falls and rises on woodwind. Something is needed to fill this expectant musical space. The answer, as so often at key moments in Bruckner symphonies, is another chorale. Once more, he reaches for a religious musical image. But what's interesting about chorales is that they're not Roman Catholic, as Bruckner was. They're Lutheran, Protestant, and so this serves a double purpose. There's a story about Bruckner creeping into the Lutheran cathedral in Linz, his hat pulled down over his eyes as a form of disguise, so that he could eavesdrop on the Protestant congregation singing a Bach chorale. So there's no doubt that there's a fundamentally religious fervour about this ending. But Bruckner is also invoking the spirit of Bach, laying claim to him as the father of German music, and aligning himself with that great tradition. From this chorale a thrilling crescendo arises, like a slow-motion film of a huge wave rising and breaking. The music twists spectacularly back into the home key and thunders towards its end. This finale may be flawed, but at the crucial moment, Bruckner has produced something as compelling and masterly as anything in the first three movements. As you surf this great wave to the finish, you can just abandon yourself to this music, to its irresistible sincerity and its devastating, inevitable power. <laughs> 